Hey guys, it is good to welcome you back once more to the Unknown Friends podcast. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode, which is the concluding episode in our trio of discussions of Pearl S. Buck's House of Earth trilogy. Now, since this is my review of the final book in the trilogy, I do recommend you listen to my previous two episodes, if you haven't already, just so you're up to speed on books one and two, The Good Earth and Sons. As always, I hope you enjoy today's discussion, and if you do, I would so appreciate it if you would leave a quick review of the podcast at the end of today's episode. It's super easy to just leave a rating, uh, one to five stars, and if you have a moment, you can add a comment or two saying what you like about the podcast. A big thank you to those of you who have already reviewed Unknown Friends, and of course, I'm thankful for all of you who are listening today. So the third book in Pearl Buck's trilogy is titled A House Divided, which I think makes the story sound a bit grimmer than it actually is. At this point, we are focused on the third generation in the Wang family, after following Wang Lung, the farmer, through his troubles and triumphs in book one, and then the lives of his three sons in book two, we're now following his grandson, Wang Yuan, the child of Wang Lung's third son known as the tiger. So in book two, we heard all about the tiger's failures and successes as he strove to become a respected warlord, which he did finally achieve, and he was determined to make a noble successor for himself out of his one and only son, Wang Yuan. So in book two, we heard about Wang Yuan's childhood as the tiger trained him in the art of war, and we learned that Yuan didn't like war, he didn't like violence or bloodshed, but while he was still a child, he submitted to his father's authority and plans for him. But once he was on the verge of adulthood, Yuan finally spoke out against the tiger. By this point, he had lost a lot of respect for his father, as we discussed in our last episode and he was sick and tired of the military training he had received. So book two ended with a confrontation between the tiger and Yuan, which ended in a separation between them. Book three then opens with Wang Yuan and his father parting ways. Yuan wants to make his own way in the world, and so he leaves his father's house and travels to a coastal city where he has relatives. Now, the tiger had two wives, and Yuan's mother stayed pretty close by her husband throughout her life, but the other wife had one daughter by the tiger and wanted her daughter to be educated. So she had moved to the city when the girl was young to send her to school and raise her in a more modern way than the tiger would have encouraged. So these are the family members that Yuan goes to live with, his half-sister and her mother, who essentially becomes a mother to Yuan as well. Yuan's half-sister is named Ailan. We finally get some personal names for characters in book three. 
And Ailan is a thoroughly modern girl, uh, meaning, of course, 1930s modern. Um, this book was published in 1935, so that is the era we're talking about. And Yuan has some other relatives in this city as well. His eldest uncle and aunt, along with several of their children, live here. And so Yuan, for the first time, becomes friends with some of his cousins. Two in particular. Meng, who is kind of a political activist, a revolutionist, really. And Sheng, who is a young poet and much more laid back and carefree than his brother Meng. So Yuan begins attending school along with his cousins, and he just loves it. He is somewhat drawn to poetry, like Sheng is, but Yuan also has a deep love for agriculture, and his very favorite class is one in which he gets to tend a little plot of land. Um, like his grandfather, Wang Lung, who he never knew, Yuan takes great delight in uh, the good earth. And he feels like working on the land always kind of centers him and gives him a sense of purpose and peace. Now, education is not the only thing going on in Yuan's life at this point. He's also wrestling with the social life that he discovers in this city. His sister Ailan is a social butterfly, and she is very free with her friends, male and female, which would have been very inappropriate in Chinese culture up to this point. But there is a westernizing influence that's starting to change the culture. Um, especially the culture of cities like this one on the Chinese coast. So Ailan freely goes to all kinds of social events, dances and things, and she's she's flirty and she's admired. And her mother is starting to get a little worried that Ailan is too free. She may get herself in trouble if she's not careful. So the mother asks Yuan to keep an eye out for his sister, but that of course means that Yuan gets kind of swept up in Ailan's social life, which ends up being a source of some turmoil for him. He was raised very strictly and traditionally, so much so that he is both attracted to and scared of the modern ways that are changing his culture. And this is probably the major theme of A House Divided. It's old meets new, um, traditional meets modern. Which is better, or can they be combined? Yuan struggles with this throughout the entire book. And he ends up having a lot of different experiences that give him a variety of things to think about throughout this struggle. Um, educational experiences, social, political, personal. We travel with him through many different ups and downs of all kinds. So he's got school and he's got this um, complicated social life with his half-sister and cousins and their friends. Then he gets pulled into his cousin Meng's revolutionary cohort. 
and a girl there develops a crush on Yuan, which really complicates matters. Um, but after one or two somewhat dramatic events with this group, Yuan's life then gets turned upside down suddenly, um, and he's not exactly sad about it. He gets sent to study abroad at a college on the west coast of the U.S. So then he spends six years in America, learning everything he can, and he does very well academically, but he also has some new eye-opening experiences as he interacts with American culture. We will talk lots more about that later today. Some positive things, some negative things, but all in all, at the end of six years, he feels very ready to come back home to China and build his life there. Unfortunately, that is a little easier said than done, um, because he is still struggling to find the place where he wants to be in the middle of his culture's traditions and innovations. And on top of that, China itself is very unsettled politically at this time. Revolution has happened while Yuan has been abroad, um, successfully by most accounts. But during these years in China's history, revolution just followed revolution. There was almost constant turmoil. And so peace and prosperity were still distant hopes. So Yuan comes home to a China that he almost feels he doesn't recognize. So much has happened to the country and to him while he's been gone. So quite a few more ups and downs still await him as he navigates the first year or two of life after college. Work is difficult, um, family is difficult, relationships are difficult, and... Without getting into any details, I will just say that Pearl Buck concludes her story with a sense of hope for Yuan to build a good life, but she still leaves us with some unanswered questions. So it's different and yet somewhat similar to the way she ends books one and two. Very different in the overall tenor of the endings, books one and two close foreshadowing imminent tragedy, whereas book three suggests that positive things await our hero. But all three books are similar in that they rely heavily on suggestion or foreshadowing. In each case, Pearl Buck leaves the future somewhat open-ended, and especially so in this last book since there's no book four in which the questions at the end of book three can be answered. So all that to say, uh, Yuan seems to have a good life ahead of him when we leave him still in his 20s at the end of A House Divided, but we don't get all the details of what that looks like or how he will overcome some of the difficulties that still remain unsolved for him. So without too many spoilers, that is the overarching storyline of A House Divided. Personally, I found this book more interesting than book two, Sons. And from what I've read from other readers and critics, that seems to be a fairly common experience. Book one, The Good Earth, is a well-established classic. 
and a lot of people say that it's the best book of the trilogy, then Sons is a little bit of a slog, um, at least comparatively. But A House Divided kind of picks up the pace again and definitely has some new ideas and storylines to add a layer of depth to the trilogy as a whole. Um, not that book two doesn't contribute anything, it definitely helps flesh out the family saga, um, but of the three books, it seems generally agreed to be the hardest one to get through. At any rate, it's certainly true that the last book offers plenty of things to think about that the first books don't get into at all. And um, centrally is this theme of old versus new how to find the right balance of tradition and modernization. Because Pearlbuck doesn't seem to want to throw out either one completely, nor does she want to embrace either completely. But the difficult thing is, just like there was no real moral compass in the first two books, no anchor, um, right and wrong were determined very relativistically. So too, in book three, there's no foundation on which we can find a settled balance between old and new. It's just up to Yuan's personal feelings of what is best in his situation. Yuan uh, strives to find some kind of middle point between the culture he was raised in and the culture that's newly forming in China. He wants to glean the best parts from both old and new and discard the things from both that he sees as unhelpful or unhealthy. But really, his only way of choosing what to keep and what to throw away is just his personal opinion. Um, and occasionally input from people around him. But there's no solid reference point, no, um, no cornerstone on which he can build his supposedly balanced life. And I think Pearl Buck wants us to believe at the end of the trilogy that Yuan will be able to find balance and find happiness with this approach to life, but I struggle to believe that. Um, I'm not sure I buy the idea that he can truly achieve a good and balanced life without something bigger than himself to which he can align his beliefs and actions. Some kind of absolute moral compass, a reference point. This is entirely absent for him. And Pearlbuck wants us to believe it'll work out for him, uh, but I find it interesting that she doesn't follow the whole course of Yuan's life the way she followed his father and grandfather in books one and two. She ends book three when we're really still at the beginning of Yuan's adult life. We don't witness how things play out for him. In books one and two, Pearlbuck put both Wang Lung and the tiger through the tests of uh, middle and old age, and parenthood, and they both failed those tests. Their lives were tragedies. Their beliefs did not bring them peace or love or contentment. And their children renounced everything they held dear. 
But interestingly, Pearl Buck doesn't test Yuan like she tested his father's. We don't know if his worldview brings him a good and balanced life, or whether he succeeds in passing on his values to his children. So I I just find that a little unsatisfying. As the trilogy ends, we're supposed to believe Yuan has a bright future, that's what the author suggests, but we're not given a lot of evidence to back up that suggestion. Now, what there is a lot of evidence for in A House Divided is Pearl Buck's own deepening disapproval of Christian missions and the Christian faith in general. So, as I mentioned in our last episode, after having been raised in a missionary home, as an adult, Pearl Buck gradually pulled away from Christianity until she ultimately became an atheist. And when she was writing the House of Earth trilogy, this separation from her religious roots was already underway. From what I've read about her parents um, and her upbringing, there clearly were problems in her family. Uh, with each of her parents individually and between the two of them. And so I think some of her objections to Christianity and to foreign missions were probably founded on some real flaws that she had witnessed. Her father was zealous and dedicated as a missionary, but by all accounts, he did not love his family very well. He didn't understand people well. He didn't take into account a lot of things that he should have. So while he may have been well-intentioned, it seems as though his approach to missions was often ineffective and maybe even counterproductive at times. And on top of that, he had plenty of personal flaws. Um, And Pearl Buck's mother, too, had her weaknesses, along with her strengths, of course. But all in all, um, as an adult, Buck became very negative about the idea of Christian missions, and then finally renounced Christianity itself. And this is evident in A House Divided. In fact, there are some fascinating passages in the middle of the book, especially, which merit close examination. So when Wang Yuan is studying abroad in the U.S., he becomes friends with one of his professors, a Dr. Henry Wilson, and he soon comes to know the Wilson family as well, Dr. Wilson's wife and their daughter Mary, who is about Yuan's own age. Now, Dr. and Mrs. Wilson are devout Christians, and it's quickly pretty clear that they hope to win Yuan to Christianity. Mary Wilson, on the other hand, is a little bit like Pearl Buck herself. Mary says that she loves and respects her parents, but she doesn't share their faith. And her hope is to prevent her parents from converting Yuan to Christianity. And Pearl Buck does her very best, I think, to portray both the Wilson parents and the Wilson daughter in a positive light, 
but she ultimately seems to be pretty solidly on the daughter's side of the issue. So she gives Mary some persuasive rhetoric that depicts Dr. and Mrs. Wilson as good, noble, well-meaning, loving people, but perhaps a little unintentionally patronizing in wanting to convert UN to their religion. That is Mary's summary of her parents, and it seems to me that Mary is pretty directly speaking for her author here. Um, I think her views and words seem to reflect Pearl Buck's own thoughts. And Mary succeeds. Uh, UN grows to love and respect Dr. and Mrs. Wilson, but Mary cautions him against embracing their Christian beliefs. And it's only her warnings, in the end, that prevent him from being converted. She pulls him back multiple times from the brink of conversion, the narrator says. Now, this makes me angry. Um, I'm not going to lie. This makes me quite angry, and I will explain to you why. First, I've got to read you a passage directly from the book so that we are on the same page and you understand exactly how Mary talks to Yuen about her parents and about Christianity. Her rhetoric is illogical and manipulative, and I want you to see that for yourself. So this is the speech that she gives Yuen um, not all that long after she first meets him. It's a little lengthy, so uh, just listen closely and bear with me. She says, I have been much embarrassed by my parents' efforts to interest you in their religion. Of them, I say nothing, except they are the best people I have ever known. You know my father. People talk of saints. He is one. I have never seen him angry or unkind in all my life. No girl, no woman ever had better parents. The only trouble is that my father, if he did not give me his goodness, did give me his brain. In my time, I have used that brain, and it has turned against the religion, the energy that feeds my father's life, really, so that I myself have no belief in it. I cannot understand how men like my father, with strong, keen intellect, do not use it upon their religion. His religion satisfies his emotional needs. His intellectual life is outside religion, and there is no passage between the two. My mother, of course, is not an intellectual. She is simpler, easier to understand. If father were like her, I should be merely amused when they try to make a Christian out of you. I should know they never could. But I am afraid... Father may influence you. I know you admire him. You are his pupil. You study the books he has written. He has been attractive to you, as he seldom has been to any pupil. I think he has a sort of vision of you going back to your country as a great Christian leader. Strange how generations differ. We feel the same thing about you, they and I, and yet how we differ. They feel, because you are what you are, how glorious to win you to their cause. To me, how presumptuous to think you could be made more than you are by a religion. You are of your own race and your own time. 
How can anyone dare to impose upon you what is foreign to you? All right, that is Mary's argument. This is her plea to UN not to be converted. Um, she talks a little bit more about the disagreements she's had with her father and their arguments and how essentially she sees an impassable gap between faith and reason. Um, so she says of herself and her father, we would reason very much alike up to a certain point when the intellect must stop and one must begin to believe without understanding. There we parted. He could take that at a leap, frankly believing in faith and hope. I couldn't. My generation can't. And that's the other thing Mary keeps coming back to, here as well as in a few other short exchanges on the topic that she has with UN. She frames it as an old versus new generation thing. At one point she says, When my parents try to influence you, remember their generation. It is not mine, not yours and mine. Now, it begs the question, what do generations have to do with the truth of any worldview? Nothing. A religion is either true or false in any time and place. This should be simple logic, of which Mary claims to be an adherent. But has she made any rational case against the truth of Christianity in any of what I've read to you from the book? Was there any intellectual argument? None. None at all. She only vaguely characterizes Christianity as irrational, without offering any logical proof for that characterization. And in fact, when you look closely, her rhetoric is full of logical fallacies and dishonesty. Um, listen to that speech I read a second time if you want, and you'll see. If you push past the impression Mary gives of being magnanimous and sincere and intellectual, you will see beneath all that a truly illogical and unjust polemic that is actually insulting to Yuan. Okay, hear me out. She illogically generalizes about her own and her parents' generation. She also puts a lot of weight in her speech on the character of her parents. That is an ad hominem fallacy, criticizing a belief system's adherence instead of criticizing the belief system itself. So even if it's true that Mary's mother is unintellectual and her father doesn't apply his intellect to religion, that has no bearing on the truth or falsehood of Christianity itself. And not only is Mary being illogical here, but she's straight up being dishonest. So she said when she began talking, and I quote, Of my parents, I say nothing except they are the best people I have ever known. And then she immediately proceeds to say much more about them, some good things, along with a lot of things that are designed to undermine their credibility in Ewan's mind. Mary says her mother is unintellectual, simple, and weak. She characterizes her father as inconsistent, and she says that both her parents are presumptuous to want to convert Yuan. 
so she can say all the nice things about them that she wants, but it doesn't change the fact that she is also bad-mouthing them even after she said she wasn't going to. And on top of all this, it truly amazes me how patronizing she's being towards Yuan, even while claiming that her parents are the patronizing ones. Um, Let me reread to you the last couple of lines of Mary's speech. She says, They feel, because you are what you are, how glorious to win you to their cause. To me, how presumptuous to think you could be made more than you are by a religion. You are of your own grace and your own time. How can anyone dare to impose upon you what is foreign to you? Now, am I the only one who sees Mary as patronizing here? She just said that Yuan can't be made more than he is by a religion. He is limited. He is of his own race and his own time. She says elsewhere that her and Yuan's generation can't take the leap of faith that her father's generation takes. Who says they can't? That is both illogical and insulting. Yuan can believe whatever he wants to believe, and Mary doesn't need to put words in his mouth, but she does, all the time. Later on, um, after this first speech, she tells him at one point, I would fight to keep you free from such beliefs, meaning Christianity, because for you, they would be false. I feel like that is Yuan's call, not Mary's. But Mary's whole approach, her her fear that her father might manage to convert Yuan, and her feeling that it's necessary for her to give Yuan warning, you know, and explain to him the unintelligence of her parents' belief system, it is all so condescending. And I don't think Mary has a clue that she's being condescending. And frankly, I don't think Pearl Buck realizes that Mary's being condescending. But we have to be able to see through this kind of thing. Mary claims to have intellect and truth on her side against Christianity, but she's afraid that Yuan will nonetheless be pulled into the irrationality of Christianity if she doesn't step in and save him. That's insulting. If she wants to make a logical argument against Christianity, have at it. That's fair. And that would be treating Yuan as an intellectual equal. But to patronize him with rhetorical manipulation? That's what makes me angry. And last thing, uh, I, I gotta wrap this up, but last thing, I promise. Dr. and Mrs. Wilson are the best and happiest people in this whole trilogy. Even Mary herself says that, essentially. Does this fact offer no evidence for the truth of their beliefs? I mean, to what does Mary imagine she owes her ideal home in which she was brought up? What made her parents saints, as she calls her father, kind and gentle and good? Her parents have fulfilled lives, a peaceful home, a happy marriage, And even though they, like so many parents in the House of Earth books, did not manage to pass on their worldview to their daughter, 
they do have a loving and respectful relationship with her, which is more than you can say for any other set of parents in this trilogy. So how did the Wilsons achieve this good life that they have? I think both Mary and Pearl S. Buck may be blind to something fundamental. They don't seem to recognize the connection between worldview and quality of life. It's simple cause and effect, which seems remarkably elusive to a lot of people, honestly. There are so many people in our world, like Mary, who want the results of a Christian life without the process of a Christian life. They would like to have happiness and tranquility and thriving relationships, but they want to take their own route to try and reach a uniquely Christian destination. There is only one path, and that is Christ. You will not find a good life at the end of any other road. So as you can see, this trilogy gave me a lot of food for thought. Do I agree with the author's worldview? Obviously not. But I am very glad I read The House of Earth because it's a window into history and culture and some beliefs that are still very prevalent and dangerous today. And I think these stories can help us understand just a little bit better how to engage with people who have ideas and experiences very different from our own. As I think I said in our first episode on the House of Earth trilogy, I would not recommend these books for anyone younger than high schoolers, uh, and really I'd say they're ideal for readers in college or older. If you choose to read this trilogy, or you have already, I would so appreciate hearing your thoughts on the books. Feel free to message me on Facebook, Instagram, or Patreon, and I would love to have a discussion with you about your opinions on the trilogy's characters and themes. Now, looking ahead, we will be starting a new trilogy in our next episode two weeks from today, and I am very excited about this one, uh, as well as slightly intimidated, not gonna lie. Uh, like our first trilogy of the season, Kristen Lovren's Daughter, this upcoming trilogy is going to be one we have to read in translation. And something unique about this one is that it will be, I believe, the oldest work of literature I've discussed on the podcast to date. If you haven't already guessed it from those clues, our fourth trilogy of the year will be Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. A hugely important and influential piece of narrative poetry, and one that I felt I couldn't omit in this season of trilogies. So that will begin in two weeks, and I certainly hope you come back for that upcoming trio of episodes. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening today, and as always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me and my work as a playwright on my website, kittywayneproductions.com. 